Sometimes people don't understand the promises they're making when they make them. John Green. Ending Not Breaking. Comic Adventures. The Promise. episode of Bending Not Breaking. This is Ben Pruitt, your host for the next couple of months. It's just me. No big deal. I can make it. It'll be fine. Uh, we are really excited today that we get to start talking about something that has been around for a hot minute, but we're talking about it in a new way because we have new content around it, which is really exciting. And before I get too more too far into that, I want to bring in our guest, who is way more knowledgeable about this. So I'm going to introduce Lucia Lobos Villa. Uh, uses she, her pronouns, and is a professional writer, voice actor with a history of studying biology and epigenetics. And she is now actively working on several projects, including Book Four, Air, as a part of the restoration project for Avatar The Last Airbender. And the project has just been released with a fully orchestrated episode one, which the characters are also fully voiced and it's covering part one of The Promise. And I am so excited to introduce Lucia. Lucia, how are you today? I'm feeling amazing. I feel like I just woke up out of an iceberg, cut my bangs all crooked and looked in a mirror and was like, let's go, let's do this. Let's go find Ben and get my honor back. Yeah, I'm I'm here for all of that. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Oh man, so I'm curious, can, can you just, Tell us, what is this project? Why is it happening? What's the deal? Give us the deeds. Well, Avatar has always had a very important place in my life. Uh, it was actually my pro, my first pro writing gig, though. We can get into that later. But um, I, I have been asked because of my relation to it and the fact that I got to voice Azula for one of those little ads um, since when I was like 19. <laughs> People have been asking me for years to dub the comics, but I don't really do comic dubs. I enjoy them. I listen to them, but it's just never been what I did. I was always more of a theater and voice acting sort of person. Um, and one day I got approached and asked, hey, I know I've been working on this Batman project and it's really cool and you have top tier talent. Would you consider doing a comic dub of the Avatar? Uh, comics this way. And I, I was very much not about it until I talked to Ryoma Ishizuka, my my co-director um, for this project. And he does comic dubs. And we thought, you know what, if we put our powers combined, we could make something really good. But what would make ours stand out from other people that had dubbed it? You know, it's already been done. Does there need to be another one? And we thought, what if instead of dubbing a comic, we did something I do more? I don't dub comics, but I do adapt materials all the time. And Ryoma said, why don't we adapt it? And I said, you know what? And immediately I had a pitch for him. I had outlines. Um, we sat down and talked about composition. Uh, I brought in James uh, A. Riley, who's a genius. He did a whole study on the soundtrack and sat there showing me all these themes and thing, musical terms I do not understand. And I nodded and said, you're brilliant. Sure, what you said, cool. Um, <laughs> very limited musical education for me. Sometimes I'll just hum something to him and he makes it into a song and then I get to go, I helped write that, which, you know. <laughs> ridiculous he's so he he um he recreated the sungi horn but we can talk about that later so we decided to sit down and actually try to adapt these comics to create a book four and so that meant not only um 
dubbing the comics as they were, maybe animating and orchestrating them, but adding additional materials because just like James sat down and examined the soundtrack, I sat down and examined the structure of the show. Mm. And it was crazy going back to it as an adult and a professional rather than a kid just vibing with it, right? Or a depressed teen later, you know? Um, And I realized part of what makes Avatar just work is its hybrid structure, right? So you, you only have three seasons, but it feels so much longer because while there is an overarching serialized plot that they keep making progress on, keeping you invested, there are individual plots uh, with every episode that usually get resolved by the end. And this gives so much room for character moments and world building and fleshing things out. So it feels like we spent way more time with these characters than we actually got to. I think this is a place where Korra initially struggles a lot and gets way better in the later seasons where they were so hyper-serialized. There was not a lot of time to really sit with the characters or the world building and figure out exactly what it all meant. Um, and clearly by the end, you know, when they had gotten things more situated with the Collodian and were able to actually plan seasons three and four together, you can see how they're going back to that hybrid format instead, right? Um, a little bit. Uh, and, and so I wanted to kind of capture that. And I thought the problem right now is the comics are all self-contained stories. How do we take these self-contained stories and make it a season. And that's where the additional content comes in and where we have our incredible comic artists drawing brand new professional quality comics for us to then dub and orchestrate to. And I just am so lucky how many people get to write things and have people of this caliber draw them, voice them, put music to them. I Even if I never make a dime, which I, I like all artists perpetually broke, right? I, I've been paid so much in just getting to create with such such talented and wonderful people. And oh. I think that is the most avatar thing about it of all is all of these people bringing their unique skill sets together to make something better. Oh, wow. There is so much that we could talk about that. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I Okay. I'm just going to go back to what my, my script looks like instead of <laughs> all the possible questions that could come out of that. Cause there's just so many cool things. I, I, I think just to be thankful for a minute that you have pulled such a talented pull together. Um, and Riom, I have to give my co-director credit. He is shyer than me, but it would not be possible without him. He fills in the skill set that I lack. Yeah. So we're like yin and yang. Everyone calls us Aang and Azula because we're voicing them, but also because <laughs> I'm the one that comes up all loud and like, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. Everyone get it together. But then when I'm about to have a breakdown because we're working so much, Ryoma's the one that comes in and is like, guys, give Lucy a break. I'm going to take over for a bit. Like yeah. I, I have banished her because she's going to destroy herself. Yeah. <laughs> and cool. I, I appreciate immensely. I couldn't do it without him. Wow. Yeah, I'm just the the collaboration and the uh, attention to what I'm I'm hearing also in your words. There's just there's so much diversity there as well that I, I just that's that's what makes Avatar so great is that kind of attention to detail. And so I'm I'm just really excited to see what else comes from you all. Hoping that um, I can I mean because I it was like oh this is a really cool way to introduce <laughs> comics. So I'm, thank I, you I, so I much. So it makes me so happy. That was something we thought about too, is there's people with disabilities that struggle to read comics and we thought this would also help with accessibility. Absolutely. For sure. Um, So 
we've heard a little bit about the project now. I want to hear a little bit more about you specifically. Like what makes you, you, if we were to ask you that question? Trauma. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. uh, oops. Uh, I mean, that's true of everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, my connection to Avatar is kind of interesting. Uh, I started acting as a very, very small child. Like I was basically a toddler when I was starting to act. Uh, in LA, I was doing theater and I enjoyed it a lot. It was a great outlet. Although it was also very demoralizing, you know, especially back then. I, I mixed race myself. I remember the term I heard more than anything else was you're ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. And um, I remember back then the game was try to look as white as possible to get cast. And then they'd okay. tell you to get a nose job or whatever. When you're like seven, that that's really right. hard. Yeah. Um, especially because my mom was not interested in being mitigating to that at all so like it was, it was difficult yeah. <laughs> um but as I got older this thing that was both my outlet and also something that could be very demoralizing became more difficult because I'm very short I mean I'm primarily Latina and Asian like neither one of us are known for height so <laughs> um I I kept getting cast as children because if they can get away with not actually casting a child they will and I was so sick of just, I kind of hate to ask it, but do you have a basket? Wait, after a while, you just want to, you want to <laughs> ask something meatier. And it was when I had auditioned for Thumbelina that I find, and they told me, I made it to the last callback and the director goes, honey, I love you. You're so good, but you're too short. And I was like, to play Thumbelina? <laughs> I was a teenager. I was like, I need to change. This, this isn't going to work. Oh, and no. that's when I decided to try voice acting. Um, I didn't really see success in it. I finished high school. I um, I left, basically ran away from home at 17. I was like, bye, peace, done, thanks, you know. Um, and I, I was a homeless teen for a while. I was just kind of couch surfing, different friends' houses. You know, it, it was difficult trying to get by. And my older brother was like 10 years older at one point was like, I just bought a house. You want to come to a different state and just chill with me? Because I've, I've got dogs and nothing else to do. So I... I went to stay with him. He was very kind to me in, in his way where he's not overly affectionate, but he, he shows he cares in his own way, his own love yeah. language. And that meant a lot to me because I didn't have a lot of parental influence or help in my life. And so my brother was it. I had raised my little siblings. There had been no one to raise me. So it was very helpful for him to do that. And while I was there, uh, since I didn't really have friends, I didn't know anyone, I got onto an avatar message board called um, Distant Horizons. Okay. And while there we were being accosted by ship wars. <laughs> and yeah. I know nowadays kids think this is just a normal aspect of fandom, but back then brutal ship wars were not as common. And so this was such a strange thing. People were not acclimated. And so the fact that the, especially the battles between Katang and Zutara kept invading the rest of the boards and interrupting everyone's fun. Yeah. It was awful. And I don't know what got into my like teenage rebellious troll brain, I go in and <laughs> so like they had a board just for shipping, but it wouldn't stay there, of course. And everyone had their little oh God, kids are going to think I'm a relic. They're like, what? Like a discord server? No, kids. We used to have to go to message boards. It was different. OK, yeah, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a board for shipping and every ship had um, a thread like there was Zutara's crystal catacombs or caverns. I'm trying to remember. It was so long ago. Yeah. Uh, Katang's. Air, a sky palace, I think it was, uh, Mako's fountain or something, or maybe that was Jinko, I forget. Anyway, they had all of those. And they were supposed to be for discussions and fan art and fanfic, but instead it often was people going into each other's and having fights and wars. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to beat this. 
especially since most of it is fighting about Zuko because he was the one everyone wanted to see paired up. So I make one and I very, very cheekily call it the canon Zuko ship, Fashiko. And when they opened the thread inside, I had a picture of all of Zuko's outfits from all of the seasons thus far. And I go, let's be honest. And I was comparing like mathematically how many outfits he had versus everyone else in the cast. And I was like, Zuko's true love is clearly fashion. Welcome to the Fashiko boutique. And so, of course, immediately, like really angry, especially Zutara shippers come in to like yell at me, thinking I'm being serious. And I don't know what possessed me to respond as if this was a retail environment. I was basically saying, uh, sir, this is a Wendy's before that was a meme. I'd just be like, I'm sorry, this is just a fashion boutique that Zuko runs. Like we we sell his clothing line. Like, And they're like, Zutara is the true ship. I was like, oh, I can get you a shirt that says that. Give me a second. Like, let me go to the back. And that was it. And after a while, other people noticed that's what it was about. And literally people would join and ask to work there and give fake applications. And I do fake job interviews and everyone's like just role playing that we work in this boutique. And one of the people that actually joined, uh, Stephanie Pines, now voices our Katara. Okay. She was just like 15 at the time. She was a kid. That's so funny. And um, yeah, she was, she had like, oh God, I loved her. She got the job of front desk receptionist because she had like a whole backstory for her character. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) That is above and beyond for a joke. I have extended way too far. You're exactly who I need in here. Come here. Yeah, Yeah. that's Um, all. Eventually, the shipper boards um, had a bunch of people duplicating this because it was popular. And people were like, (laughs) Happy Co, Zuko and Happiness or Zuko and Tea. And it started to spam. So they shut down the boards and removed all of those. And then they brought them back. So we had peace for a short, brief time. The shipper boards were shut down and there was no fighting. Balance was restored. So, so close. Yeah. But then they brought it back and they closed said, the spirit hey. portal. Yeah. Close the spirit portal. They brought it back and said, no more, no more fake ships, no more joke ships. They're all banned. Let's, let's be real guys. And I remember some people saying, Fashiko doesn't count. Fashiko's canon. There should be an exception. They didn't let it happen. And you know what? It was fine. I didn't care because it was a joke to begin with. And I'd made a lot of friends. So I just went on, you know, writing around the message boards. What I didn't notice was that I'd gotten noticed. Mm. So here comes Dave Roman, who worked for Atla. He was the head editor at the time for Nick Magazine. Uh, He did some comics for Atla. And he really wanted to make a promotional video for San Diego Comic Con uh, for, for book three. And he had fallen in love with Potter Puppet Pals. Have you seen Potter Puppet Puppet Pals? Yeah, it's like a classic, right? And he wanted something like that to promote book three. And so he asks Kevin Copa, who is an incredible professional. My gosh, the kinds of stuff that guy can make. Mm -hmm. He's even worked with Bruce Campbell. He's he's phenomenal. Uh, He asked him to make it. But Kevin realized that the job of making all the puppets and the sets and filming it was going to be a lot. And he wasn't going to have the time to write the whole script and, and send it to Nickelodeon to make sure it was good. And we'd made friends on the message board. And Kevin had seen that writing was what I used to deal with conflicts. Uh, yeah. Since I'm not very big, I'm four foot 11 and all the 100 pounds, maybe. So um, wit is how I got by. And Kevin said, do you ever write? And I said, oh, yeah, I write all the time. He said, no, professionally. And I was like, I think I've had like a short story published once when I was like in middle school by one teacher. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. And he asked me to come write this. And it was it blew my mind. How cool is that? It was my first pro writing gig. And let me tell you, at the time, I'd been feeling very useless, right? Like I didn't have the money to go to college and mm-hmm. I'd wanted to, to be a medical biomedical researcher. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to afford that. 
Um, my life is a mess. I don't have any friends. Like, what am I doing? Colorado's cold. I've never even seen the snow. I'm from California. It was miserable. And then this came into my life. Mm. And it was a grueling process. When you write for a corporate, you know, they'll send it back a million times. The script you guys got was not my original pitch at all. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I still think my original idea was funnier, but I understand there are corporate reasons why we couldn't do some of those jokes. They weren't inappropriate. It's just politics. Yeah. Um, the ending was the hardest part. We could not figure out an ending. And that's why Kevin and I, we were like, we were at the deadline. Kevin was like, I need to film something. We just need to come up with an ending. And we were like, what songs does Viacom have the rights to? And we just slapped too late to apologize, called it a day. We're like, it just... <laughs> Just and then it's funny because like everyone would quote that at me like that was the funniest part. And I would sit there inside like a teenager that hasn't learned to appreciate yet and be like, that's that, a sellout part. That was but OK. Part. <laughs> as an adult, I'm like, I'm so happy anyone enjoyed it. I cringe yeah. watching it. But as a teenager, I'm like, I'm an artist. How yeah. dare you like the part? I, <laughs> the part oh, I didn't gosh. even want to do during my angry Zuko phase. Like, how dare yeah. you talk to me? Now I'm Fire Lord Zuko. I'm like, look, I don't sleep. I don't eat. I'm just happy you're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, wow. Okay. So yeah. you've given us a, a, a full account of kind of your affiliation with like Avatarverse in general, but also. I later voiced Azula for the second one we did. Of yeah, that yeah. There's, there's just so much <laughs> going on with your history that I'm just really glad that our listeners have um, a better understanding of who you are and what makes you you. That's, that's so lovely. So thank you for listening. I know that was kind of a lot. No, it's, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's helpful. So you have clearly done some, some professional work for the Atlaverse, for the Avatarverse. Um, and you are now kind of working on this comic journey that is an adaptation of these comics. And so uh, we have decided to focus on the episode that you've recently released today for our podcast episode. And episode one, The Promise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, which primarily covers part one of The Promise. If, is that right? You are completely correct. So what we've yeah. done is uh, The Promise arc is going to have five episodes. Okay. And the first three episodes are the first three volumes of The Promise. And so episode uh -huh. one is The Promise, the titular promise. Episode two will be called The Hawk and the Turtle Crab. And episode three, well, I'll let you guys see when it comes. Oh, uh, when it comes out. <laughs> oh, a little sweet speak, no? Okay. Uh, so we decided we're, we're going to focus on part one and we were kind of tossing a bunch of lens options back and forth, but you ultimately landed on promises yes. uh, as, as the lens and it's, it's on the nose, but I'm, I'm curious why, why did we choose that lens? Because I think that a theme in these comics is promises. We often think of them like contracts, right? Like we made a deal, but there's a reason why the word promise has an emotional weight to us that the word agreement doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I say we agreed this, it means the same as the promise, but it doesn't feel the same as we promise this. Mm -hmm. Why does promise have that impact? And I think it's because the, a promise isn't actually a contract. It's a relationship. And mm -hmm. I think that the relationship between the cast members um, or the the characters as they are coming out of childhood into adulthood and facing a world where there is no longer one big villain to defeat, you know, yeah. but, but a bunch of smaller, more gray issues. It, it's so easy to say we need to take down the despotic fire Lord. Like that's such an easy thing to agree on. Yeah. But 
trying to undo the legacy of the war of colonization, that's hard. You have made promises to many different people to take care of them, to fix this, to write this, even amongst your loved ones. How do you balance all of those relationships, those promises, those responsibilities? It's going to be impossible to meet everyone's needs 100%. And that's the crux of the issue, right? Like war is horrible, but simple in a strange way. Defeat the enemy is the goal of war or, or repel the enemy if you're, you know, being attacked. But peace, peace is hard. Peace, people, <laughs> people think that peace is the opposite of war. I disagree. I think the opposite of war is creation. Mm. You are building a society where everyone feels safe and accommodated enough that there isn't going to be conflict in war. Yeah, That's hard, way harder. It's easy to fight. I can run up and punch someone right now, easy. <laughs> How easy is it for me to go to someone who is opposed to everything I believe in or who would be hurt by things that would help me or help by things that would hurt me and try to find common ground? That's hard. It is. And I think that's why the promise, because Zuko has made a promise to the people of the Fire Nation mm-hmm. to be their, their leader but he's also made a promise to the people of the world that he's not his father, that he's going to right the wrongs that his ancestors have made. But those two things might come into conflict. And meanwhile, Aang is shouldering the burden of his promise to his people to, to keep their legacy alive. His promise to Roku, to the spirits, the world to be an avatar that is going to, to bring peace and undo all the horrible things the fire nation has done. His promise to Zuko, that if he turns into Ozai, he will end him. And all of those, not to mention the little promises to his friends and family, you know, that he's going to be there. Yeah. And all of those might be in conflict. Yeah, I, I think the things that's coming up for me is that a lot of what you're saying, there are explicit promises and then there are implicit promises. And, um, like there's the the titular promise, right? That yes. you know, end me um, is that is an explicit promise where Zuko is asking for this promise. Whereas all these these other ones are more implicit. They're like, I commit to doing this. Yes. And people receive that and says, you promised that you would do and like, hold on. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Right. And so the the word promise, I think, carries a lot of weight. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to is that we're going to have to kind of parse out the difference between agreements, commitments, and, and promises. And promises. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that oftentimes when we make a commitment that feels like our relationship is in balance, I wonder if we are, I wonder if promise is the more apt word. And I don't, and I don't know, but we're going to hopefully use this episode to find out. Um, Let's find out together. But, but, but I promise you. Before we do, we have to do our due diligence and make sure that everyone who hasn't yet seen book four, episode one, uh, has or hasn't read the comics, knows what's going on. And so what we've got to do is we've got to have a 30 second recap. Ooh, let's um, go. Let's do it. So what that means is uh, we are both going to do a 30 second recap of this episode. And I'm curious, would you like to go first? Or would you like to go second? Um, I would love to hear yours. Yeah. 
no shock there. <laughs> I, like, whatever. Would you like me to go first? I'm fine with either. No, I'm never I... afraid of anything, Zuzu. I can go first if that's what you need. No, you already uh, pawned it off on me. So first. <laughs> it's been done. The promise has been entered. All right. So if you could do me a favor and at your leisure, would you count down from three and I will start? Sure thing. Three, two, one. So a hundred years has passed since like Ozai and it's really bad. It's like all the things. And so Aang and Zuko are now like in collaboration with Earth King Quay and they're trying to remove the Fire Nation colonies from Earth Kingdom because that's the right thing to do. And then there's, you know, the Harmony Restoration Movement. And they're like all gung-ho. And then, you know, a few weeks pass and then, you know, oh my gosh, Zuko's really worried because he's doing this. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in, uh, Kari comes in and is like, oh my God, you're the worst and tries to kill him. And then, you know, it works out. And then I totally, I just ran out of time. This is terrible. Um, <laughs> so here's the deal. I only got through like half of that. So that means it's, you, 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 I really need you to do better than I did. So. All right. I will do my best. I will <laughs> promise you. Yeah. I, I'm going to hold you to this promise. There's going to be some accountability around that. Let's see what happens. All right. Count me down. Same thing for you. And I'm going to count down from three. Three, two, one, go. The Avatar is back. A year after the events of Avatar The Last Airbender, the world is at peace, but an ominous promise made on the night of the celebration haunts, haunts the young Avatar. Should Zuko ever turn into his father and abuse his new position as Fire Lord, Aang must take his life for the good of the world. That's it. That's my recap. Oh, dang. Oh, wow. Okay. I love it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot going on that I'm really excited about. All the details will probably come out in our discussion. But as a general rule, what we're learning is that we're trying to deal with the Fire Nation colonies that are in the Earth Kingdom. And this is just all the conflicts that are surrounding that. So we're going to we're going to figure it out. So we're talking about promises. And I want to go straight to you and toss up what is a moment in this episode where promise comes up that we can learn from that. Uh, there is a moment in this episode where Aang is talking to Roku. Yeah. And he's specifically talking about the fact that he promised Zuko that if he started acting like Ozai, he would kill him. And Aang clearly doesn't want to kill him. And he's saying, I didn't even kill Ozai, who is true, you know, fully evil. Why would I kill Zuko, right? who is my friend? This doesn't make sense. And Roku, uh, taking a cue from Kyoshi, is like, nah, just kill him, all right? No. Yeah, <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> what Roku's actually saying is uh, a continuation of what he said in book three, right, about decisiveness. Mm -hmm. Aang made a promise to Zuko. And he is telling him uh, from his own experience and the pain of what he's gone through. Roku was not decisive with Sozin. He was supposed to be there to catch Sozin if Sozin went bad and stop him if necessary. And so I think Roku both feels that he broke that promise not only to the world to protect them from Froze, uh, from Sozin, uh, but also his promise, implicit relationship promise to Sozin to not let him do this either. Um, and feeling that pain and that weight and that guilt He's kind of projecting that onto Aang and saying, hey, you're in a similar situation. Don't forget, you've made two promises here. One to the world to protect them and maintain balance at any cost. And two, to Zuko himself, who is your friend. That's why he brings up to him. He says, Zuko at one time understood this. Yeah. Keep your promise to the Zuko that was, the Zuko that asked you for this, not the Zuko that is that's acting like his father. Yeah. Okay. Here's, I, I have issues. Um, so I am really kind of critical of Roku in this moment. Me too. I and think we should be. 
like Roku has a, a very different lens than Aang does. And I, I really like the way you phrase that where he's projecting onto Aang a little bit. And he's, uh, there's this transference of, I messed up because I was too lenient and I let things go too far. And part of that was that he, there was just a, a lack of noticing, right? And he is worried that Aang is probably gonna be in this similar boat. And Roku has this benefit of hindsight, but also he has this whole narrative that he is putting on Zuko that seems like it is pretty unfair. Um, and so I, this this asking of like, you, you committed to this, you said you were gonna do it, but Aang now has more information than he did at the time. And so to me, I, I'm really concerned with the ethical idea of, I made a promise when I didn't have all the information and now I have more information or I know that I can get more information, which is where Aang is. And I don't want to make a decision until I have that information. And I think there's the lesson, right? There's a multiple lessons from this scene. For one, our, our mentors, our heroes, even the best of them are imperfect. They You're are all here. products. Speak truth right there. Yeah, of, of their own experiences. Roku is a good person who does his best to help Aang. Yeah. But he's not perfect. His own traumas and guilts and regrets are clearly informing him here. Maybe not the best advice. On the other hand, Aang himself, his insistence that they have to segregate the colonies and get rid of the Fire Nation people and give the land back absolutely with no room for compromise is informed by the fact that Aang himself is growing up and starting to truly understand what he's lost. Because at 12, your people have been genocided. You're sad. That sucks. But you don't fully understand the depth of what that means at 12. You can't. Yeah. Aang is like 13 on the cusp of 14 at this point. He's starting to understand the breadth of what is gone from the world, what it means to be the last airbender, the last air nomad. So to him, he thinks he's preserving these cultures by segregating them. And so when Roku comes and says, well, you made a promise to these people, right? It's speaking to Aang because the mistake Roku made cost Aang his people. He is inclined to listen to Roku and believe that Zuko is bad because he doesn't want that happening again. But there's that part of Aang, that spark inside of him, even against his own trauma and pain and what his mentor is telling him, that this is wrong, that Zuko might have a point, that Zuko isn't a bad person. And I think there's a lesson there about our own moral compasses and our own intuitions and the promises we make to ourselves. Yeah. Aang promised himself that he would not be a killer. He would honor his people's beliefs to the end. He would truly remain the last airbender, the last air nomad. If he killed Ozai, Ozai wins, right? Because he destroys the last airbender, makes him no longer follow his people's most, most sacred teaching about life. Yeah. By choosing not to kill, Aang is honoring a promise to his people as well, a promise to himself. And that is that is a lesson. There, there is morality inside of you. And sometimes even when pressures are on you and it would be so much easier to do what you're being told because it makes sense. Sometimes something inside of you tells you it's wrong. Yeah, I don't know that I, that's kind of an epiphany for me that I'm really kind of uh, reveling in. It's resonating <laughs> with me. The idea that if Aang had killed Ozai, the last airbender would have been no more also. Yeah. That is 
so important. And I don't think that everyone would agree with that. And I, I like, I'm all, I'm sitting here going like, yes, but <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who would hear that line and be like, no, he's still alive. Right. <laughs> but, but the, the, the nature and integrity of who he was would yes. have been lost. And therefore the, the airbenderness, the nomadness, the who he was because of where he came from would have died. And like Yang Chen says, you have to put the world before your own enlightenment. But Yang Chen was an air nomad in a time where there were a ton of air nomads. Yeah. If she isn't, uh, you know, the embodiment of their beliefs, so what? Like she doesn't have to be, right? Mm -hmm. But Aang is the last one. If he doesn't embody their beliefs, the Fire Nation wins in their genocide. Yeah, he's all that's left. That's a lot of weight to put on a 12 year old. And I can understand why he didn't want to kill Ozai. I I've often had people ask me like, why didn't you just kill him? Like, that's the easy solution. And, you know, they'll call Aang names. And I'm like, it wasn't it was philosophical. It was, you know, think of think of Gandhi opposing the British, right? Mm -hmm. He chose nonviolence. They could have gone the route of of bombing people and, and, yeah. and you know, firebombing and, and uh, guerrilla warfare. Yeah. But they didn't. There yeah. was a very specific reason he chose nonviolence. And it's the same premise behind Martin Luther King Jr. in the state. Exactly. Well, right. There's it is living into the integrity of their belief system to choose nonviolence. Um, because I, I mean, MLK's whole deal was beloved community. Yes. But you can't have beloved community if you aren't being the beloved community when you're trying to create it. Um, the, the ethics of means ends and like everything in between, like if your means don't match your ends, then you're, you're lost. And this and is don't get me wrong. There is a place for fighting when, yeah. when you can't always just hold hands. Like when enemies are attacking you, there's a reason Aang and co still march to the fire nation with an, an army. Yeah. I'm not saying try to hug Nazis or anything like there <laughs> is a time for fighting, but there is also a time when you have to lay down the sword and say, I refuse. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think the difference is defensive versus offensive, right? Yeah. What are we protecting versus what are we uh, destroying um, or collecting even? So, okay. So I'm, I'm hearing one thing around this, which is uh, my, I'm going to, I'm going to zoom out and then zoom back in there. There's a, I have problems with promises. And this whole thing proves to me that promises are like the worst. So <laughs> I, I struggle with them because there is a, such a common trope of making a promise and then getting more information and then realizing that you cannot fulfill said promise. And it's not always getting more information. Sometimes you're put into a position where you literally can't. Right. And it's like, okay. And now this person hates me because I couldn't do it, but they weren't aware of the whole situation that I was in. Right. And so it just creates this just gross ugh around what promises are and what they mean and how like you promised. And I'm like, yeah, I did. But like, things change. Life is messy. <laughs> Life is messy. Right. And so my problem with promises is th this concept of, of, of scope insensitivity where, and what I mean by that is, uh, an, an insens insensitivity to distance, to time, to these things that are outside of the things that we can comprehend. And, you know, it's interesting to me that when, and, and a, a good example of that is, hey, when this happens, promise me that you'll do X. 
Zuko. Uh, and, and what that doesn't account for is, okay, that's happening 30 years from now. And it's not accounting for anything that happens within those 30 years. And the inflexibility of holding people accountable to something that they said 30 years ago or 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago, it doesn't matter, is really problematic for me because I'm a big fan of accountability, but I'm a really also a big fan of like adaptability. (laughs) And I think promises must adapt in order to, I think relationships matter. But also, I think promises can be very manipulative in that way. They can. Right? Absolutely. But that's where I think that we need to start thinking of promises more as relationships rather than as contracts, right? Because what happens in a relationship? In a relationship, you you end it if you have to. Yes. If you have to, you end it. But also, if you're trying to maintain it, you compromise, you grow, you change, you work on it. Mm. And I think that is how promises really, when we're being rational, that's how promises actually work, right? Like if your parent promises you, you're going to go to Disneyland and then one of them gets fired and they go, hey, kiddo, we can't go to Disneyland. It's not that they're breaking their promises. It's that everyone's had to adapt because conditions have changed. And one would hope that eventually the family gets back on their feet and everyone gets to go to Disneyland and the promise is fulfilled, even if it was not fulfilled in the way they originally intended. What's interesting there is children don't have a capacity to understand that. Yeah. Right? Their brain development doesn't comprehend. Uh, And their psychosocial development, they have to be taught this. So there's a learning curve there. And often that stems based off on, on a lot of things. But like, you know, you have to be a certain age in order to really grapple with that. And so when a young child hears that they're going to Disneyland and they say, hey, I promise we're going to, they, all they hear is that we're going to Disneyland. And then all they hear is that we're not going to Disneyland anymore. And so what that means is there's, there's broken trust there. So to me, like, who we make promises to children uh, in particular matters, right? Like how do we phrase that in a way that like, we want to build hopes. We want to boost their like, Hey, this is going to happen. We're really excited about it, but also not say it's guaranteed. Right. (laughs) And so I, I just, promises are icky, icky. I don't like that. They can be. I think they're icky the way we use them now. That's what I think. I think this culture of trying to tear people down because they couldn't meet an expectation that they were trying genuinely to meet. And there's a difference between someone that promises and makes no effort and just lied, right? Like liars, that's a different story. Yes. But I think we need to be more realistic about sometimes it isn't that a person has intentionally lied or misled, but that they were just unable. And and sometimes it's trickier, right? Because when it's a financial thing, it's easier to go, well, they just didn't have the money, something went wrong. But sometimes it's something trickier. Uh, sometimes it's, I, I have a mental disorder and it's making it difficult for me to fulfill this. And that's something we're a lot less sympathetic towards, right? Absolutely. As a society. And we really should be more understanding. Any sort um, of invisible disability, right? Yeah, yeah. Chronic illness. What about that? Like it, maybe I wanted to take you to Disneyland, but I just can't. My lupus flare up. I, yeah. I just can't. And As far as teaching children when it comes to breaking promises, I think that we just need to be honest. I think that children will learn what we teach them. And if we sit them down and treat them with respect, obviously you can't tell them, well, here's the finances. Look at the checkbook. They're a kid. But honestly, telling them like, hey, 
These are the reasons we can't go right now. Yeah. I love you. Validate them. Uh, I, I think a perfect example is actually in Avatar. In, you see the difference between how Ozai handles it when Zuko criticizes him versus how Hakoda handles it when Katara criticizes him, right? Mm. So like, here's an implicit promise that a father will take care of you, raise you, love you, protect you, nurture you, right? Yeah, and that's a cultural promise, right? Yes. That we learned that we are socialized to believe that. Yes. Both Ozai and Hakoda break this promise for different reasons. Ozai breaks it because he's a malignant narcissist despot who doesn't care about his kids except as extensions of himself. Yep. Hakoda breaks it because he's forced to go to war to protect his tribe. Yeah. Um, so when Zuko confronts Ozai during the Day of Black Sun and tells him off for all of the ways he's lied to him and hurt him and how banishing him was actually the best thing he ever did because he needed to get away from his influence. Yeah. What does Ozai do? Ozai shows a moment of rage tries to kill his son with lightning yep. then leaves never thinks about it again never brings it up he does not care that yeah. zuko doesn't isn't happy with him yeah just a complete abandonment of his responsibility and implicit societal promise to his kids and then we look at hakoda katara has a moment where she's so tense on that boat where ang's almost dead they're heading yeah. into enemy territory she's losing it trying to keep she's always only keeps everyone together she doesn't have the luxury of being the one who loses it and for once she just can't yeah. And she just breaks and she lays into her dad of, and she knows it's irrational. She says, I know you didn't want to, but we were kids. How could you leave us? And what does Hakoda do? Does he sit there and tell her all the reasons she's wrong? Does he, he tell her to, you know, yell at her back? No, he tells her that he's sorry because he knows, even though it wasn't his fault, he knows he's failed to keep that promise. Yep. He tells her that he loves her, that he's proud of her. He validates her hurt feelings. She is entitled to have them. She's not irrational for having them, but reassures her how proud he is and how much he loves her. And in doing that, Qatar is able to let go of that anger and pain and disappointment that this promise was broken and they can work towards a new implicit familial promise. And I think that's the difference. We need to just sit down, validate our kids' frustrations, that, that something didn't work out. Yeah. Explain to them, you know, parents and adults aren't perfect and we're doing the best we can. And I think through doing that, kids will grow up into more well-adjusted adults that understand the nature, the dynamic nature of implicit promises and relationships. I'm all about it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good comparison. And I think that helps us kind of understand that I, it's, I'm going back to this quote that you offered us of it's it's not a contract it's this relationship right and relationships ebb and flow just just like things and when we hold people in in as a way of control we use promises as a method of control it's really problematic and yes. what you're saying for and what you're giving us is this way out of that right if we treat it as a relationship we can uh reckon with how that can change and sometimes that hurts that's and that's yes. how it works but also there is a a freedom that comes with that that allows us to maintain our integrity and maintain who we are live inside our values right which yes. is the, the goal we're hoping for Absolutely. And even I know how much it hurts when you're the one who has a promise broken to you, even a really, really important one, like parents yeah. not loving or taking care of you. Yeah. I know. But you know what? The less time you spend dwelling on the promises that you were cheated out of, the more time you have to move on and build something new. Yeah. And if we fall into the trap of, well, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me for a promise we're not going to get, we're not growing either. Not only are we harassing someone that either can't or won't give it to us. Yeah. We're stuck too. And I think Zuko is a perfect example of that, right? For most of the show, he's stuck on I am my honor. I was promised my honor. If I get the avatar, I'll get yeah. my honor. And ironically, of all people, Azula's the first one to tell him, homie, you didn't need dad. 
you restored your own honor. Bam, yeah. boom, there you go. Look, <laughs> like, yeah, of all people, right? But Iroh is the one that really helps Zuko see. He tells him, yeah. life happens, Zuko, whether you want it or not. He could stop fixating on that promise Ozai's clearly going to break to him and just move on. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to the episode and let, let's zoom back in. And I want to zoom into an implicit promise that was made a uh, hundred years ago. So one of the things that I find most interesting about this is this commentary on colonialism. Yes. Um, and so a hundred years ago when the fire nation was starting the war, they were like taking over portions of the earth kingdom. And so they were sending fire nation citizens to colonize the earth kingdom and they set up multiple cities, including New Dow, which we know turns into Republic City later on. Yeah. And... Uh, no, it doesn't. They retconned that. Oh, did they? Yes. Uh, New Dow no longer turns into Republic City. It's now Cranefish Town that turns into Republic City. It it doesn't New Dow become Cranefish Town or what? no? Cranefish Town is the town they. I know they retconned it, so I don't. I don't blame you because originally New Dow was supposed to become Republic City, but in Imbalance, they said that Cranefish Town, which was the little place they go to in the Rift. That grows into a big city. That's the one that becomes uh, a public city. Uh, I know it was thought, a change. I thought you Dow turned into that. Turned into that. So that's just my fault. Um, no, it's not your. It was a retcon. So like, I can yeah. see why there's confusion. Originally, you Dow was supposed to become Republic City. Well, I wouldn't have known regardless. if I hadn't spent so many months yeah. writing outlines and details. Yeah. <laughs> like it is vague. A lot. There's a lot of confusion over it. But yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but you're well, right. You are correct. They sent people to to colonize yep. these areas and uh because the earth kingdom is so vast there were outskirts uh, away from the capital that didn't have a whole lot of aid or infrastructure yeah. and here comes the fire nation with its more advanced industrialization because you know they can literally make fire just with their hands that yep. kind of helps um they build infrastructure yeah. so here's a complicated question right like it is not right to take lands by force from other people. You're killing people. You're hurting people. You're displacing people. You're oppressing them in some instances, practically enslaving them for their labor. On the other hand, as Zuko points out, they brought that infrastructure and that industrialization. And now everybody is wealthier for it. Something that the earth yeah. kingdom was not able to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of a, a complicated history of colonization because there's been horrible bloodshed and violence and violation that should not have happened. But now with their combined forces, what they have built, the new culture, 100 years later, the culture they have built, the infrastructure they've built, the blended families and businesses. Yeah. This is trickier now. It's not so easy to just say, get out, because it's not what it was before. Well, and that's a I, problem we see today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the if we step back a little bit further, not a hundred years further, but like to the harmony restoration movement itself, yeah. I find that meeting incredibly problematic. And the reason I find it problematic is because the only people in the room are people in positions of power and privilege. And so it's the earth King, it's fire Lord Zuko, the avatar and the avatars posse. Yeah. Right. And so heroes of the hundred year war, might we say. Yeah. So these bolstered people are making the decisions for all of these people without consulting them. Without Absolutely. them in the process. And so what, I mean, every sort of critical theory out there, whether it be critical race theory, queer theory, discrete theory, whatever 
critical theory you are leveraging is going to say like social work is primarily centered on this now at this point now as well, where client centered, how are we focusing the people who are most affected by the problem in the solution? How are we centering their narrative? How are we centering their story? How are we centering their experience in the solution? And what we see in this decision is that these people in positions of power and privilege are not at all considering that until one of them tries to assassinate one. Yeah. And so it requires an assassination attempt. And out of Zuko's mercy, he keeps her alive. Yeah. And decides to follow up. And I don't know, man, they're like MVP right here for Zuko because this this child, this teenager, I guess he's not a child at this point, but this teenager is leading a nation in such a way that there is not a chance in hell that if someone tried to assassinate the president of the United States, that they would be then sitting with the president and be able to have a conversation with them and say, hey, come to my country, see why what you're doing is wrong. See why I'm mad at you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm just like, and so Zuko is modeling for us a, a utopian version of what it looks like to heal. Yeah. From a colonial experience and but he is not doing it perfectly yeah he lacks the experience to understand how to do it which is why this blows up into a conflict that's see that's one of the most interesting things about part one or for the promise in general there's no villain yeah there is no villain they're not fighting a villain this is a disagreement over how to resolve the legacy of colonialism and the promise they all made. Cause that's another promise. They all, an explicit one, they all promised to bring the harmony restoration movement to completion. Zuko yeah. breaks that promise. As you said, he got more information. Yes. He breaks that promise. And I, I think if anything is, if I were to villainize anything, not necessarily any person, but anything, it is a lack of communication. Yeah. Right. It is, it is this, uh, assumption of people's character that becomes the problem and it happens on everybody's account right it's it's a huge problem nowadays nowadays it's i think the internet has amplified it more than ever we essentialize everyone somebody did one thing that's problematic suddenly they are the demon and we cancel yeah yeah that we all like talk about them a certain way we all harass them we we say it's okay to dox and send them death threats it's insane it's absolutely crazy people are so much more than their worst moment Yeah. And so my original question here is there was a promise made to these people a hundred years ago. Right. And we don't want to honor that promise. That promise was dirty. But at the same time, every child, there's, there are generations of children that have been born and adapted and learned to grow in these fire nation colonies that were, that were hundred years old. Right. And as you said, they're now, they're, they're meshed so inextricably together with Earth Kingdom citizens and Fire Nation citizens that they're, they're living together as one. And yes, it's not perfect. There are definitely class structures that are still present and that are, that are clearly noted in the comics. Which I'm glad they point out. Yeah, there, there are definite, it's not perfect. And Zuko's notices that and says that. But he's willing to lean into the discomfort of not knowing exactly how to proceed without having the people most proximate to the problem involved. And I'm just saying that, like, that is the way to honor. A, like, this is this is how it looks like. Like, honor, right? This is honor. Yes. Is this is honor! honor. Like, talk about reclaiming that. He is. It's all your own honor, Zuzu. 
You yeah. don't need the avatar. But you know, this is very personal to me because I'm 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 American, of course, but I'm my family's Peruvian. Okay. And that's a Latin American country. And um we are so blended because obviously we were an indigenous people, the Incas, you know, the Emperor New Groove people. <laughs> uh you're welcome for potatoes. We made those edible. You're welcome. Um, we were the Incas and we got colonized by the Spaniards. And what's interesting is the Spaniards themselves had been colonized by the Moors. And that is why their architecture is so much more Arabic compared to the rest of Europe. So here come the Spaniards with all of their past that they had been colonized by the Moors. They no longer are right. They got their, their Liberty and they turn around and colonize Latin America. Yeah. And then what happens? Well, eventually uh, these countries get their, their freedom, but they are, they are also blended. So you can't just get rid of all the Europeans. Now they're a part of us, right? Uh, and what happens? Well, like the Americas do, they import African slaves. So now there are another whole other demographic of people that yeah. have joined in the mix. And eventually slavery is made illegal, should have never been legal. And we have all these different uh, groups. And now to make it more complicated, Peru's solution to slavery being made illegal was, well, we still need cheap labor. Let's import Chinese immigrants to do cheap labor we can exploit. Yep. But as a result, this has left such a big impact on us that a bunch of us are part Chinese or Japanese. Like their former president in Peru was Fujimori, Fujimori. Mm -hmm. Like that's our, our cuisine. Uh, it's nothing like what you might think when you think of, oh, like Mexican food, right? Like, no, no, no. Ours is Chinese food. Like we have chow mein and fried rice and, yeah. and our own equivalent of like raw fish. Like it's, it's so chifa, we call it. And so my own ancestry, my own culture, heck, even looking at my family and how different yeah. all of us look, we are, in essence, we are Yudao. Yeah. We are a colony that has become something different. This can never go back to being what it was. Yeah. Peru, all those other Latin American countries each have their own unique culture as a product. Oh, that was, you just gave me a thought here that really kind of resonates, which is, this, it, it goes back to this concept of like, we, we want to return to normal. Yeah. Right. And it's not possible. Like that's yeah. what you, you've given us this, that because we have been so enmeshed, it's impossible now to return to normal. What we, the only thing we can do is move forward. We yes. have to, we have to aspire to a, a new normal that is um, <sighs> encompassing all the complexities of the people that exist here now and honoring the dignity of every person. Absolutely. So how do we do that? Like, how do we move forward? Not how do we, and I, I, and I, I, I think Aang is specifically colored in this way because of his so immense, strong desire to return to have his people back. And of like, course. This, this is the only way, because this is how it was hundred, this is how it was when I was there. And so he's is, obsessed with preservation. Exactly. His culture has been decimated. So in his mind, keep everything separate. And we see this with, with later on in the story, there's these air nomad fan clubs. And initially he loves them Ooh. because they're all, they, they love his people and their culture. But later he sees the ways in which they are not getting things right because yeah. they can't, right? They're doing their best, but they can't. And this upsets him. It, he sees it as almost like a, a tainting, a perversion, a mockery yeah. of his people's culture. And you can see that desperation to preserve because they're gone. Yeah. And that is influencing why he is so dead set against what Zuko is saying. Yeah. And he's like, no, we need to separate them. Earth Kingdom is Earth Kingdoms, Fire Nations, Fire Nation. Stop it, stop, yeah. stop it. 
And that that's his own pain, just like yeah. Roku is projecting onto Aang yep. that he should kill Zuko. Aang is projecting onto the colonies, like, no, 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 preserve your own cultures. Don't don't let yourself be be, yeah. be ruined. And but Zuko is looking at the wider picture of Aang. Cultures aren't a natural state like that existed just as is. Like we made them. And thank goodness for Katara here too, because she's the voice of reason in this. Like yes. Aang is there, they are they are so defensive. Uh, like and they are just like and yeah it's i'm like how how did this happen y'all but this is just such a big deal to them we realize because so much is on the line for zuko like he doesn't want to be ozai he's like really really wants to do this in the most honorable way possible right and at the same time ang is like so committed because of what you've just described and so that really when i was watching it the first i was like why they just spent uh, such a long time working together they know they know each other like why are they all of a sudden and it's because this is such a high pressure situation for both of them as and well. they're kids and they're children adults don't know how to resolve this look at yeah. look at our, our world leaders can't resolve this kind of stuff we're still arguing about colonization yeah. reparations well do we do we even um acknowledge taiwan as a nation china doesn't want us to like it's right. it's everywhere yeah. is palestine a nation israel says no like it, it's a mess we don't know how to resolve it as adults on the world stage with with generations of experience. How do we expect these teenagers yeah. to know how to resolve one of the trickiest complications that human society has run into? Yeah, it's yeah. not easy. Yeah. And I think that part of it is they went into this with so much optimism. They made this promise to each other. Quay is the only real like adult, but you know, he's kind of been infantilized by Long Feng keeping him sheltered. So this yeah, is the yeah. first <laughs> time Quay <laughs> is being a king. Yeah, so like they are not prepared yeah. at all. They're doing well, their best. It hasn't even occurred to them that they should talk to the people. Well. Like, <laughs> yeah, and 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 again, I don't blame them. But the fact yeah. that there were no advisors in this room, the fact that they're like they, even even advisors, like come yeah. on, like uh, not that I trust advisors, right? Because you're hiring what you know, and like so it's. I like, think that's the problem. All yeah. of the, it's been a hundred years of war. All the advisors they have are specialized for war. Yeah. yeah, yeah they yeah, don't yeah. have yeah. advisors for how to fix this yeah. because it's been an, multiple generations of we're just Good fighting. Point. Yeah. You know, so where do they go? Good. These people don't exist anymore. Anyone who had experience in the world before the war is dead. Yeah. So yeah. where do they go? They're, the, those elders and their precious, you know, wisdom is gone now. Yeah. And these kids are trying to fix these these problems without even fully understanding them. And that's exactly right. Like that's again, that's what's hinging. The, that's the he- harmony restoration movement is hinging on the fact that they don't understand what change is looking like. They they are presuming what change should look like. Right. And yes. it, as soon as you involve the people, you realize that that's different. So, again, it's a it's a it's a matter of scope. You don't know what you're promising until you. Oh, oh, my. Uh, oops, <laughs> what? Oh, gosh. Nope. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> it's interesting. I read a study uh, in prep for this and I was thinking about like promises in general and thinking about the difference between, like because, you know, honoring a promise is like maintaining and building credibility like and we credibility is a good thing so i'm like okay but why do i not like promises so much but you know what's really interesting i found that um uh, if i promise you to that i'm going to give you half of my cookie and i give you that half of the cookie uh that's great. You're going to be like, you get it. And your, your response to that is going to be awesome. If I, I trust you. Yeah. If I instead give you a full cookie, the, the study suggests that there isn't any sort of benefit to exceeding expectations, which is really interesting to me. 
Um, and I'm wondering what that looks like because exceeding expectations doesn't yield necessarily better relational outcomes, right? So if I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I promise you that you'll you'll get at least one cookie, and then you, and then I give you two. Like that is the same as me giving you one. And I was like, what's going on here? And I think we are so attached to credibility and just the, because this is a trust issue, right? This, it really comes down to trust. If I can build that trust, but what doesn't build trust is getting two or three cookies. It's meeting expectations. And I am not at all saying we shouldn't rise above expectations sometimes, especially for the people that we love and care about. But I am saying that it's suggest there's some suggestions that like just meaning expectations, which means, which means theoretically that we don't have to promise more than we can provide. Yes. Right. Over promising and under delivering is unhelpful. It is actively harmful, but under promising and then meeting that expectation is going to and so that's somewhat problematic for for companies that take advantage of that it's like oh, oh they absolutely you, do yeah. like you know you're gonna get at least one serving and then they give you a lays chip bag that has 14 chips in it and it's like okay well that's what's supposed to be in a bag and that they made expectations when really i'm like where are my chips right i and swear I'm, there used to be more like you're charging me more for less chips it's, and, and it's, it's just interesting like how companies can leverage that and so I, I bring that up, not because I necessarily have something that's tying in here, but uh, there, there's a lot of things that meaning expectations, um, honoring commitments are, are important. And I want to honor that, <laughs> no pun intended, but also I'm really curious about like just the, the takeaways from what we've learned so far and I'm hearing a few things. So help me remember these things past what I say, but I'm hearing one that promises must be adaptable because they're, they're a relationship rather than a contract, right? It's not, it's not one and done. What I say goes, it is now that I have more information, we are, it is subject to change. I'm also hearing that promises are, can be utilized as a way to manipulate others. If, if you are living into a contract mindset. Um, What are some other takeaways that we're walking away with from about promises? That the main promise and the one you have to honor the most, no matter what, is to yourself. And that is very difficult because we live in a culture of external validation. We want to deliver promises to other people so they'll like us. Obviously, that's normal. And we want other people to deliver promises to us because then we feel validated, worthy of respect. But the real most important promise, the one we must never break, it might change, but we must never break, is to ourselves, to what we believe is right, to what we believe uh, should be done. Mm. And that is the only reason that episode one, that all of these stories don't end in disaster because there are implicit and explicit promises getting thrown around in a very complicated uh, situation. Yeah. But the reason Aang doesn't kill Zuko is because although he promised to do so, he honors his promise to himself to not kill his friend, to not be that kind of person. Mm -hmm. And Zuko, it would have been so easy for him to just do the Harmony Restoration Movement, kill Corey, send the freaking, or put her in prison, send the armies, forcibly remove everyone, get all of your accolades that you're the good fire lord and not your dad. He could have done that. He would have been fine. 
Eng Katara would have been like, way to go, buddy. But he would have been breaking his promise to himself to do mm -hmm. the right thing yeah. to his people, to be a good fire lord. And that's really the crux of it, right? Yeah. The most important promise is the one we make to ourselves for the kind of person we want to be. And we cannot break that even when we have commitments and promises to others. We cannot break the promise to ourselves. Yeah. I, and I, I hear that and I, and I like, yay. And we break promises to ourselves all the time. We do. Um, do we get any information? And this is probably the last thing we need to say, cause we we're, we're, we're having a great conversation, but <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, do we get any information in this about what happens? What do we do when we break a, a promise to ourselves? What is, do we get an, an example of what rupture and repair looks like in this? Uh, we do in episode two, actually, because okay. Zuko does break a promise uh, because he's so overwhelmed with everything that's going on and he pays the consequence. Yeah. So and he acts the most like Ozai in episode two to somebody he loves, actually. Yeah. So maybe that's a, a good uh, segue into our, our, our break just to be like, and you get to look forward to what that looks like in the next episode. But I, I, I'm hearing from us that there are lots of takeaways and we're going to we're going to mess up. We're, we're human. We're, we're going to mess up. But um, rupture and repair is probably something that we might want to address in a future episode, maybe we talk about what that looks like when we fail to meet our expectations of ourselves and our, yeah. Okay. Uh, this has been fabulous. So what I want to do is I want to like, we could probably go on and on. I have like, <laughs> we only talked about like half of my notes. So. I'm so sorry. I'm just having no. such a great time talking to you. <laughs> no, like, and it's just one of those things where like, we could go on and on and this is it's people don't want to listen to a seven hour episode. So, um, let, but uh, you guys promised. You click play. That means you <laughs> promised to listen to the whole episode. Yeah. That is an implicit promise. We're going to hold you accountable to that. <laughs> um, all right. So let's do this. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll let some music tickle your ears for a second, and then we'll come on back with our our final couple of segments. everyone welcome back we're so glad you stuck with us uh, after that incredible conversation you know that the next couple segments are going to be very fruitful and full of all kinds of stuff so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into that next episode it's twee and la which for those of you who aren't aware that might be listening for the first time this is a chance for us to think about moments in the episode that push us away 
and moments that pull us in. So this kind of gives us a chance to talk about those, uh, those really those big moments, those highlights, and also those moments where we're like, what? Um, and so this kind of gives us a chance to talk about some things we don't normally talk about during our discussion time too. So what are some of the writing choices, scenery, music, word choices, anything that comes to mind? Of course, we're allowed to talk about whatever we want because we don't, everybody's different about what pulls us in and pushes us away, but we're just trying to find some balance around that. And we're going to invite Lucia. Lucia, you have a chance to talk about what pushes you away and what pulls you in. I'd love to hear about uh, both. I think something in this episode that pushes me away, and I think it's written because we're supposed to be pushed away by it, is Aang making this promise in the first place to kill Zuko and then Roku Roku later doubling down on it and telling him a promise is a promise. (laughs) It's kind of a lousy (laughs) bit of advice, but like we talked about earlier, I think we're supposed to be repelled. We're supposed to see what happens when we are inflexible because we have knowledge Aang doesn't of everything Zuko's going through. Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to see the result of inflexibility, of, of lack of communication and opening our minds. So that is an intentional push from the narrative of what happens when we are too, infle- even when we think we're in the right, if we yeah. are too inflexible, what will happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that is a, that is a, I want to be explicit here and say that is a product of, of colonization and supremacy culture, where if the urge to um, like binary thinking that yes. the only way to make progress is to be bigger, better, bolder, like the, this, all of these things are products of supremacy culture. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, direct com- conversation for us in, uh, in the United States, especially is white supremacy culture, right? Um, everything is kind of stemming from that. And the urges to respond the way that they do are, are tr- they are indoctrinated into that way, because that's the only thing that they know. Yes. So that's the reason, right, that uh, Aang would make this promise in the first place it is he would never make this promise if <laughs> like, right, this would never occur in a, a culture that wasn't steeped in this. It would never occur to these people creating a harmony restoration movement to do this without consulting the people who are affected if it weren't so problematic that they came off a 100 year war. It is a product of that. And so I just I'm I am definitely on board with what you're saying here. And I'm, I'm pushed away by these moments, too. Like the fact that Aang makes this promise seems so out of character Uh, and yet we can understand like they are partying in the in the beginning when Aang makes this promise they are celebrating the end of the war they're all relieved and Zuko just brings the mood down when they're all partying and laughing being like Aang I need you to kill me if I turn into my dad though okay and let's be honest how many of us if we were in Aang's situation celebrating after a huge trauma everything's finally over and we're trying to be relieved and our buddy just comes up to us and is like listen though if I turn into a piece of crap like my dad that ruined all of our lives, like I need you to just kill me, like please, for the good of the world. Like if you don't, the world's going to suffer and that's going to be on you. Like how many of us would say, sure, just to like get out of that conversation, thinking we'll never have to. And I think there's an element of that because Aang's like, bro, I'm not going to do that. And Zuko's like, okay, but you kind of have to do it because like if you don't, what if I destroy the world? (laughs) And like Aang's like looking around, everyone's just trying to party. He looks at Katara, Katara just nods. Like she's like, bro, just do it. Like, just do it. Like, we got to do, like, just do it. And so then Aang finally gives in. And I don't think he ever thought it would come up. I think, like, I mean, have we ever yeah. had a buddy that's an yeah. emotional moment? And we'll say whatever we think they need to hear, right? That's like, maybe, fair. like, have we ever had a friend having a crisis? And we we say things like, dude, no, it's going to be fine. You know what? We're going to go to Japan and we're going to stay at the Godzilla Hotel. And, like, 
neither of you is money. You know, it's yeah. not going to happen. You're making these promises, not necessarily thinking that they're real promises, but again, it's a relationship. Your yeah. real promise that you're making under those words is I will be there for you. Yeah. And that's the same thing. Aang doesn't want to kill Zuko. He's just kind of like, all right, Zuko is spiraling into a depressive mood. And I'd be like, sure, dude, I'll be there for you. I'll be your safety net. Please don't jump off Appa right now. Like, can we just enjoy the party? Yeah. <laughs> I, and I think the fact that it's rubber, rubbing me the wrong way is just indicative of like my discomfort, right? Is like, of, like, uh, of course I would, uh, I would have said no, uh, there's no way I, because I know better, but like, I, I know I've done this before, right? Yeah, and, I think that's, and I think that's probably why it makes me so uncomfortable is that like, I have this like judgment of it, but we're only judgmental in areas where we're most judgmental of ourselves. Of so. ourselves. Cause don't we feel uncomfortable about times we've done this where we've told someone like, yeah, sure. We'll do that. And inside you're like, I am never going to do that, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. Like <laughs> I'm sure we've all done it. It's part of the social contract, right? Like if someone says, let's go yeah. get coffee. Uh, it is rude to go, dude, I don't want to go to coffee, right? Oh, so yeah, sometimes, like, sure, we'll get that. Yeah, yeah we'll get it. We don't necessarily mean it to every single person we say. We just, you know, we don't want to be rude or hurt feelings. Yeah. It, it might not even be anything against that person. It's just time or whatever. Like, dude, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. and But we say, yeah, right? Like, yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about pushing away and you you mentioned that Roku's advice is poopy. So that yeah. that, that solves that problem for me too. I, I agree. I, I, I think the logic of a promise is a promise is trash. So it is. Like it just, I'm, I think that's, a, you know, just end all, that's it. I think that's, that's Roku's own justification because he's <laughs> judging himself, right? Yeah. He's like, I didn't keep my promise to the world to protect them from Sozin and, and to be there for Sozin yeah. and, and stop him if he was going bad. So I should have kept that promise. And a promise is a promise. Like our, our yeah. heroes aren't perfect. Our heroes yeah. aren't perfect. I think Roku is, like we said, projecting his own failures and trauma onto Aang to yeah. try to prevent Aang from making the same mistake. Roku's intentions here are good. It's not like he's just being a jerk. Yeah. He, he is trying to spare Aang the same mistakes and pain. Like our parents often do. Like how often do our parents say things like, you know, oh, just, just march up to that store and ask for a job right then and there. Because that's how things worked in their time, right? And yeah. they do not understand that if you do that, not only will they send you home, but sometimes they might be like, yeah, don't hire that person. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about pushing. Uh, we've pushed away. Okay. We're sufficiently pushed. We got to, what pulls us back in? What are the things that really uh, we loved? What are, especially for you? I'm, I'm curious to hear what you, what you love. Oh about. gosh. There's so much I love about it. There uh, might be some bias here, but you know. <laughs> I think something we both agree about is Zuko actually listening to his people, even after they've tried to assassinate him, that to be able to set yourself aside that much. And your own like grief or someone trying to kill you, your own ego, your own anger to go, all right, I'm going to hear you. That's huge. And I think part of the reason Zuko does it is because as a child, he spoke out of turn once and what happened to him. Yeah. I think Zuko is very aware and doesn't want to do that. So this girl's clearly acted out of pocket trying to assassinate him. Yeah. But he doesn't want to be Ozai and just kill her and go, well, play stupid games, get stupid prizes. He wants to listen. Because that's what he wishes had been done for him. That's a really good point. I, I hadn't drawn that connection. Um, it's in a way a parallel. It's the it is it, between it really, the law yeah. and balance, right? Roku is projecting onto Aang this bad advice because it is what he wishes he had done, and he thinks he's sparing Aang. Zuko is acting the opposite of what he experienced because he knows what it's like to experience that, and he wants to be better. He wants to do different. He is breaking that cycle. 
And I love that he listened to them. I love that when he is talking to Katara and Aang, that he is explaining all of the reasons. He is explaining that he knows it's not perfect, but all the reasons this culture, this brand new blended culture is valuable and worth preserving. I love that because Zuko didn't know that. That means Zuko sat there and listened and observed and learned. He didn't walk in going, well, I'm the fire Lord. So all you guys have to, I mean, he did walk in that way, but he didn't stay that way. Yeah. He put his ego and his status aside and listened. Yeah. I, I think part of his relationship with Ozai has what has created slash uh, like cultivated within Zuko is just this air of humility where he is not at all coming at this from a place of, I know what is best for everyone. And I, I really love that about Zuko and about people in leadership positions, period. Right. Anyone good leaders, right? Yeah, exactly. Like anyone who's willing to say, I don't know that I have an answer for this, but I'd love to find out and learn more is uh, that that is a good leader. Right. And I think Zuko is just embodying that. So I definitely ag- agree with you. Um, for so me- he needs some self-care though. Look at him. He looks like he's going to yeah. die. He needs a sandwich and a nap. So. Yeah. That's, honestly, we didn't talk about that at all. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what happens when we pick a certain lens. Um, for, for me, the thing that pulled me in, uh, and I'm going to kind of just going into the, uh, the choices of the, the voice actors is the voice actor for Katara really, I, I, I think out of all the characters, this is the one where I was, I, it felt so seamless between, and I'm not like, I'm not saying that it should be Mae Whitman at all, but it, it really felt like living into the way that the character has been over the course of the, the first three seasons, right? This, it felt like a seamless transition into who Katara is becoming and it's the same inflections that Katara had. Like, I just really felt like, I think you said Stephanie is Stephanie Pines. Yeah. Stephanie did a phenomenal job. (laughs) So I just want to want to honor the work that went into that and whether that was just all intuitive or how much uh, Stephanie worked on that, but like it was an, she worked on it. All of the actors actually went and, and studied kind of the speech patterns because what I told them was we don't need exact matches. Like you don't have to sound exactly like them, but you need to embody them. And speech patterns are something that you can control more than, than, you know, not having the same voice type. And Stephanie luckily has a similar voice type to Mamie Whitman to begin with, but she sat there and she listened and she not only picked up the way uh, Mae Whitman speaks, but I think she really picked up the way Mae Whitman masterfully plays her where Katara is a person of of multiple frustrations because she puts others first. She nurtures others. She has taken so much responsibility so young to be the mother and at, at such a young age without anyone giving that to her. Right. And so she, she is a person of multiple frustrations and yet so often prioritizes the frustrations of others. Yeah. And in this way, she embodies her element because what does water do? Water when yeah. presented with an obstacle moves and it adapts and it flows and it soothes until the pressure builds up. Yeah. And then water wins. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to win against water. So I I think that Mae Whitman perfectly embodied that. And I think Stephanie 
got that. I think she studied it. She got that connection. That is exactly yeah. what she puts in. I agree with yeah. you. I think she doesn't get enough credit because everyone talks about Sokka and Zuko, who I agree. Those two are amazing. But my gosh, Stephanie's Katara needs more rep. <laughs> yeah. No, I was I was very impressed. So, okay. So we- I do have to give credit to all the main cast though. Grant Corvin yeah. as Sokka. All those, the comedic timing, the screaming, the even doing the speech pattern, Jack to Center. You're supposed to knock when you go inside, not when you go outside. That's not how yeah. he speaks at all. That is all him putting that on. Um, uh, Kalthar, who is playing Toph, uh, Kalthar Harak Sharif, she is- relatively new compared to a lot of our very experienced actors. She was very nervous coming in. Initially, Ryoma had wanted me to play Azula and uh, Toph. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think that's fair. There's so many great VAs out there. Pick yeah. the one you think I sound more like, which I sound more like Azula. That doesn't surprise me. I've been asked to do a lot of great alive voice matches. Um, and I actually picked her up from this like uh, VO group where she was there to learn. And there was just something about her. Yeah. Her ability to have vulnerability behind strength mm -hmm. was just so tough. I asked her to do this. She was so nervous, didn't think she could do it. And as you can see, I think she nails it. I think yeah. she she perfectly has that. Like, I'm acting tough, but inside I'm kind of just a kid and I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and then Zuko, my, my kid brother, Cade Watts, who was so anxious to do this, he he didn't feel like he could. He was like, I'm not you. And I said, you don't have to be me. You yeah. have to be you. And I think that informed his Zuko of, I feel like I have to measure up to someone else, whether it's the fire Lord or my sister, Here. Yeah. but I need to just be okay being me. And there's a lot of discomfort in his, that he puts into his performance that I think is, is perfect for Zuko. That's being informed by his own fear of not meeting expectations of not meeting promises so many people wanted to be Zuko and, and Ryoma cast him because I think of that vulnerability Cade exudes and I just love the whole cast. And of course, Ryoma is so bright, so sunny and yet so comedic when he screams. Like I love his ang. He, yeah. he, I love them all. Beautiful cast. You guys are amazing. All right. <laughs> well, we have sufficiently covered our, our, what has pushed us away and pull us in. So I want to transition into our next segment, which is, yes. Uh, our devotion. And so again, for those of us who are potentially new to the podcast, uh, the goal here is that what we're doing is we're kind of cycling through the avatar cycle, knowing that embodying all the elements helps us find balance. And so each week we pick a new element and this week the element is water. And we are putting that in conversation with the lens we choose, which is today promises. And we're we're ideally setting an intention based off of what we've learned in, in our conversation. So what have we learned by talking about promises and what is an intention that we want to set uh, ideally something that we can accomplish? So something we can check off of a list perhaps uh, in the coming week. And so Lucia, for you, like what is an intention that you want to set for the coming week um, based off our discussion on promises and uh, in conversation with the element of water? Well, I think it's, incredibly fitting that it's water today because as we said promises like relationships need to be changeable and adaptable and that is the core element of water yeah the element of change the element to be able to to flow and move on and 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 adapt and get mm -hmm. strong when you need to but be soft when you have to and yeah. that's that's perfect for promises because that is exactly we need to to understand when it's time for a promise to be hard and we need to meet it we made this commitment and it is important and when it is time for a promise to flow maybe hey 
this promise isn't going to work out or, Hey, it will, but it's changing. Mm -hmm. And we need to be willing to, to do that, balance that, understand and, and use good judgment to know when it's one and when it's the other. Cause like an implicit promise, like example, to take care and love your kids. That's not one you should break, you know, like whenever possible, you should not. On the other hand, taking the kid to Disneyland, things happen sometimes. Right. Um, but even in more serious things. And I think that's something I need to work on in this regard, being flexible. I, I can, I am a creative. I am, I'm, uh, one of the two big leaders on this project and it can be very easy for me to, I have to set expectations. It's part of my job, right? Yeah. It can be very easy for me to get so caught up when we're not meeting certain benchmarks. Um, I have to be flexible and adaptable with myself most of all, because I find I can be very understanding of others, but I am incredibly hard on myself when I don't fully do something perfectly. And I need to be better about adapting for myself. That is very difficult. I, I spend so much time accommodating others' schedules so that they can work to their best capacity. And I appreciate you immensely for, for finding time in your schedule for me. You, you adapted for me in a way I would have not have done for myself. <laughs> Um, but in general with schedules, with, with expectations of ourselves, with all of that, we have to be adaptable. But the other thing water always does is it keeps moving. So it doesn't mean you stop. I can't meet this promise. So I just give up. No, the water keeps flowing. You have to keep going. You have to adapt. That doesn't mean you give up. It doesn't mean you stop. You keep flowing, even if it's in a different direction from what you intended. And I think that's something we can all do to improve upon that is to be willing to be flexible within ourselves because only if we can be flexible within ourselves, can we be better at being flexible with others? Yeah. So I'm hearing from you this desire to one, keep moving and keep flowing, but also in relation to promises to be flexible. So I'm hearing those two qualities of water. And then how is that going to inform this week? What is something that you are going to do this week uh, that's informed by that? Well, I got cast actually in a play uh, for Dracula, a Dracula oh, melodrama awesome. as Nina, uh, the, the wife of Jonathan Harker. So it's a really fun role and it's like a comedic melodrama. So I'm having yeah. fun with it. But because of those schedules, my schedules for the Avatar project have ha have to completely change. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am lucky to have my co-director, Anthony Rodriguez, uh, co-voice voice director, Anthony Rodriguez. Uh, and so something I'm going to have to do in this coming week is to adjust the recording schedules mm -hmm. and be willing to, to ask of Anthony that he takes some when I'm at rehearsals mm -hmm. or at the performances. And that's difficult because I don't want to put it upon him. I don't want to burden yeah. him. I promised I would do these recordings. And I, I have to be willing to do that. I'm that. going to do that this week. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I think that's really helpful. And it's, I think that that narrow, narrower focus for us is really helpful to kind of understand what it looks like to put these things into, into practice. And so I'm yeah. grateful to hear that. For me, you know, there's a few things that come to mind when it comes to promises and the, the metaphor of water. One is the idea that of, of filtering water, right? Because water... Uh, is is accumulating uh, a lot of, of poisons, right? And it's the yes. universal solvent, but also it's like it dilutes poisons. It makes it, sick, but it also like will hold onto them until it becomes tainted, right? It is adhesive and, and cohesive. It sticks yeah. to other things and itself. Yep. Exactly. And so what that means is 
oftentimes we have to filter water because, because it is so willing to take on those things, we need to figure out how to filter those things out. And for me, I, I, I'm thinking about what that looks like in my life. And I'm thinking about the implicit promises that I have committed to, um, whether it's to myself, whether it's to specifically, I'm thinking about honestly, my workout schedule. I recently shifted to waking up in the mornings before class, um, and going out, going to work out and do something. And I was like, I'm going to do this every day on every work day. And so I, and I started doing that. And then the next week, my, my leg was in pain Mm. because I was running and I was like, I was making a commitment outside of the scope that I understood. And my body was saying, no, (laughs) <laughs> That's too much, dude. You can't go from zero to a hundred. And, and it's exactly the problem is I went from zero to a hundred and I am coming to terms with the fact that I can still honor that commitment without having to do this five days a week. And so honor the spirit, not the letter of the law. Exactly. And I think that's what it is, is how do I uh, filter with this new information that is and make it so that this water is going to run clean rather than continue to get clogged up. And so that it becomes unusable and untenuous. And um, maybe not filter out everything because there are minerals in water that are good for yeah, us. Right? So that makes it even harder, right? Because we can't just filter everything. We want to filter the toxins and the poisons yeah. and keep the minerals that are healthy for us. And differentiating between them isn't always easy. Yeah. Cause I'm prone to extremes. So I'm prone to like, well, I guess I can't work out now. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no time to eat potato chips. Yeah. That's it. I tried. And so I, I think my, my goal that I'm going to sit with and try to uh, check off my list this week is I want to sit for a moment to discern and create a new schedule that feels more, uh, in line with, and that and it can scale up. It is subject to change like water, right? But yeah. I want to set a new schedule that I can live into without feeling like I'm breaking my commitment to this, to this thing that I'm trying to accomplish. I think that's an admirable goal. I think trying to get healthy in general is an admirable goal. And I think the fact that you're being realistic with yourself and kind to yourself to admit, I didn't fail. This is just more than my body can take on right now. No, I actually succeeded too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did too much. I need to scale it back. I think yeah. that is an incredibly difficult thing to do sometimes, yeah. especially for anyone who you know, is a creative that works on things and strives for perfection. And yeah. I think it's it's really, really wise that you recognize that and that you're going to go, you know what? I didn't fail. I'm adjusting. I'm changing. I'm flowing so that I can keep this promise. Because if I keep up with this, this misinformed version of this commitment, I'm going to destroy myself and not keep the promise. Right. I need to adapt so I can keep the promise. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I appreciate your you know, affirmation, but I I really want to affirm this process as a teacher, right? Because this probably wouldn't have happened had we not had this conversation, right? (laughs) It would have happened later than it probably should have happened. And so I just, I love the, this model of this podcast that helps us learn from Avatar, right? Around how it can benefit us. And even as we escape to the fictional world of Avatar, how is it helping us live better? That's why it resonates so much because Avatar is an escape, but it's also a teacher. And I agree. I love this podcast. Thank Thank you so much for having me because I, I've been wanting thoughtful fandom conversations for so long and I, I appreciate that you're here. Well, no big deal or anything. Speaking of gratitude, <laughs> it's time to move to gratitude for our final segment, which is- I am so grateful. Yeah, my, my favorite segment. <laughs> um, and so what we do again, for those of us who are potentially new to listening is 
our goal here is we've had a long conversation and we've picked apart some things and we've learned and we've gotten angry at some characters and we've also had a moment to appreciate some things, but this is a moment for us where we want to appreciate a, a character that has given us something, uh, whether that be um, just anything that we're thankful for, that we heard, that they said, that they did, that is going to stick with us longer than longer than today. And so, Lucia, I'm going to pass it off to you. Who Who is a character here in this episode of part one, The Promise, or part one of book four, Air, um, that you're grateful for? So for most of my life, I'd probably say Zuko's the one I'm grateful for because like many of us troubled kids and teens, you know, we saw ourselves in him. But for this episode, a bit of a curveball. You're going to be surprised. I'm actually most grateful for Toph. Okay. All right. And the reason is, like you said, while everyone else is running around in their privilege and blindness, trying to impose things and then realizing it doesn't work and arguing with each other about, you know, what should be done and killing each other or whatever. What is Toph doing? Toph has opened a school. Yeah. Toph has rejected her privilege because she doesn't have her parents' money mm-hmm. and has chosen instead to pass on her knowledge for free. She has chosen to teach. Mm-hmm. Rather than, than fighting over who deserves these lands or whatever, she chooses to teach. And she doesn't know if she's qualified. She's struggling and learning and it's hard for an earthbender to be adaptable since like being rooted is such a big part of them. Yeah. But she's trying to learn to be the first ever metal bending teacher. How can you teach a subject you invented? And, and this is huge for her because she was not well socialized. She didn't even know how to get along with the gang and yeah. she's extending herself. But the other thing I admire about her that I could learn from, and I think we both have learned from, is that although she's putting in all this effort and she's so used to doing things on her own to the point that it causes her problems in the show, she goes to Sokka for help. Yeah. When Sokka offers help, she doesn't go, I'm the greatest metal bender ever. What do you think? When someone challenges her school and tries to take it from her and calls her racial slurs, honestly, and Sokka says, I have an idea. She doesn't go, bro, what do you know about? I mean, she does kind of joke like, dude, you're not a metal bender. You're not even a bender. But he tells her, I can help. And she lets him help her. Yeah. She opens space inside of herself to change, to let her friend help this time rather than being stubborn and hitting herself against a wall until eventually giving in. She just lets him help her. And I am grateful for that. Just like I need to let Anthony help me while I'm doing these rehearsals. Yeah. I'm, um, really, I'm honestly grateful for Toph too, actually. I'm, we didn't really talk about Toph in this conversation. And it's interesting that you, like the the characteristics of Earth being like stubborn and you know unmoving and et cetera et cetera and you know I find that Toph was particularly adaptable in this episode and especially right like yeah. the willingness to like, just drop and leave and go say hey to check on what's going on down in New Dow. Uh, and then to, she's kind of remarkably go with the flow is like, okay, did I kill him? No. No. All right. Okay. Like, it's just like, let's just see what happens. And like, there's this, there's little, um, I think she's just in learn to kind of trust her friends. And, uh, I really appreciate that about her. So I'm just kind of vibing off of that as well. It's, it's interesting because as we go through these episodes, I think that Toph goes through the same arc Zuko does, but she speed runs it. Oh, interesting. About legacy and your parents and doing the right thing. And are you uh, are you being abusive because that's what your parents did to you and you don't even realize it? Or are you breaking the cycle? She She's doing the exact same thing Zuko's doing. She just speed runs it because it's on a lower scale. It's yeah. a school rather than nations. Uh, and I think that thematically she is the 
the most locked in with Zuko, which is interesting because they barely talk, if at all, in this comic. They are just independently having the same journey. Yeah. 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 Okay. So for for me, I, I I agree with you that Zuko is the obvious pick here. Just the we've talked about it already. So the leadership style, the humility, just you know total MVP. So instead of leaning into that, I'm going to lean into Katara, which again, I, I kind of briefly talked about um, earlier, but particularly leaning, leaning into this moment where Zuko and Aang are fighting and they're, they're in all kinds of de- defensive mode with each other. And, you know, there's this suggestion that the um, citizens can stay and Aang is like, no, separation. It's the only way. And Katara's like, it could work. Like maybe, like if <laughs> we this, think about it. And just like this, this again, this very water characteristic of like, oh, a, a new pathway. We're going to start having water go that. It's like this, exactly, this, yes. It's very water, right? And I just, I really, for some reason, was like, that just is so important for Aang to have next to him. And, you know, for all the Zutara shippers, I sure, but like maybe it would have been helpful for Zuko to have that, but he is doing well in this episode and Aang needs Katara in this moment. And I am grateful that, and like relationship would be based off need, blah, blah, blah. I don't want, I'm sorry. I even brought up ships. Why would I do that? But it doesn't have to be based off need, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make an effort to help those we're in relationships with when they have a need. Thank you for saving me. I got Uh, you. I got you. Like water. I'm really grateful for Katara. And, you know, there are multiple moments. It's not just that. Aang goes in the Avatar state and she's the one who's willing to go and like be like, "Uh uh-uh, you don't want to do this this way. If you do this, you need to do this with a clear mind and understanding why you're doing what you're doing. And you don't want to make this decision out of rage, right? And I, I, because he would regret it for the rest of his life. And I just really appreciate her level-headedness. And I'm just really grateful for Katara. And the empathetic connection she makes because she sees the people of Yudao as blended families. Aang hasn't even considered he's in a blended relationship. Yeah. If he continues down this staunch, unyielding path of, no, we are separated, he yeah. is preventing his relationship from continuing. And he hasn't seen that yet. But Katara, oh, because she's, point. Yeah. she has seen it. She has seen herself in the the family that tried to assassinate the girl that tried to assassinate Zuko and her parents because she's mixed race she's firebender and earthbender and and or fire nation and earth kingdom and she sees that and I think that is why she's such a mitigating force here she sees Aang's reasons and she sees Zuko's and she is willing to question and sit and find a new path like you said here here okay well uh, that kind of brings us to the end of our time together. Lucia, this has been an incredible adventure. I would love for people who have been listening that want to know more about you to be able to find you. So what are what are ways, if you'd like them to, for that you want people to find you? Thank you so much. Uh, for the project itself, we now have a dedicated YouTube channel. So uh, if you want to find us, the YouTube channel is Book 4 Air Restoration Project. Um, real easy to find on YouTube. Uh, I myself, you can find me on Twitter at Lucia Lobos Villa. Um, as far as the Patreon, because we could always use the help. Uh, we, we, like I said, we have artists that, that are making new materials, composers making music, video editors, audio engineers, voice actors. And right now everything's coming out of pocket and a lot of people are volunteering or working below rate just out of love of the project. But I myself would love it if people could get paid better. And if I could also, you know, afford medicine and 
this project. So uh, we do have a Patreon. Uh, it is under construction. So like right now it's very bare bones. Uh, you can also help us on Kofi. My Kofi is just my name, Lucila Busvia. Uh, the Patreon you can find on our Twitter. Our, our Twitter is at book4air. Real, real easy to remember. Um, but yeah, just look us up, give us some help. And if you even just want to chat, meet some of us, everyone in the cast and crew is lovely. They love the fandom because we are the fandom and we're always happy to hear from people. Awesome. Well, everybody, you can also find us at all the things on uh, BNB underscore pod. We're on all the social medias. Uh, we are sometimes active, but you know we're always responsive. So even if we aren't active, we're responsive. If you want to connect with us, we're always welcome. We also have a Patreon and we have lots of cool perks. So we actively recommend that you check that out because we are, as Lucia has mentioned, you know, artists that don't necessarily make money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we appreciate that. Our main goal right now is to get enough to make sure that our producer is earning a living wage for the time he spends on the podcast. So that is our primary goal right now. Um, so if you can help us help book four, we will want help for all of our rich listeners, you know. Uh, <laughs> but even if you don't have money, don't worry. There are ways to support us. Uh, word of mouth, just telling other people about us is a huge deal. Giving us reviews on the podcast is a huge deal as well. So thank you so much for all of our listeners for being a part, for our current patrons who are who have been supporting us for months now, sometimes years. Uh, we're really grateful for you you and this has been another episode of bending not breaking uh and until next time you will and do good <laughs>